0: Here we are with our final episode in our podcast, The Original 33 AD, a conversation about the original church asking what if the church started over. If you haven't, go back and listen to the first three episodes as they lay the groundwork for what we'll be talking about today and might bring a bit more context to some of the questions. My name is Jordan and I'm here with Pastor Nate and we're going to dive into some questions that were submitted about the church. So let's begin. All right, Nate. So question number one. The early works and relationships of the disciples in Christ seemed very love-based, but a lot of Christian movements and groups today seem to be divisive and argumentative. As Christians, should we be fighting for our beliefs or loving those whose opinions differ from our own?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for asking questions. I appreciate that. and. I don't think I could ever claim to be able to answer all these questions perfectly, but hopefully um, we can have a discussion that at least begins to generate some some thinking and, and maybe even further questions. So what's our posture? I, I guess that would be my phrase um, when it comes to being followers of Jesus in this world. Uh, unfortunately, oftentimes we are uh, known as combative. Um, I think we have to understand The cultural context is different So Most people would say that we're living in in Something, a culture that's moving to being Post-Christian Years ago I think people self-identified As being Christian I I live in the United States Mm of America, it's a Christian nation well, that's no longer the case. We're a pluralistic society and one of the things that our country values is religious freedom and different religions are practiced here and our forefathers are very very conscientious about separating church and state. I think uh, followers of Jesus usually look at that and they're they're perceiving one way is they want to keep um, the state out of the church. Well, our forefathers also wanted to keep the church out of the state. Mm -hmm. So I I think we we value both, and our forefathers understood that. So how do we present ourselves to culture? You know, there will always be some things that I think we need to be adamant about, and stand strong about. Uh, You can't help but look back and think about World War II. One of my favorite authors, a man who's really shaped a lot of my thinking, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, He probably chronicles this as well as anyone I know. So he's a German theologian, and he is watching the rise of Nazism, and he's not okay with it. And So he he begins to stand against it, and he's wrestling with these questions, like, what do I do? But when government moves towards something that's evil, uh, how do I be a good citizen? Um, Where's the line? Where do I say that's not okay? And so as he contemplates this, it's a beautiful story. He eventually actually escapes from Germany, comes to the United States, is a professor, uh, but his conscience is just bothering him. So he actually sneaks back into Germany, starts an underground theological school, and the more twisted um, the Third Reich becomes, the more he's bothered. And as he thinks through this personally, he actually ends up being involved in a plot to try to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And the way he presents it, it wasn't an easy decision for him, but as he's confronted with this pure evil and if I do nothing, I'm complicit with this. Uh, the plot ends up being foiled. He's imprisoned. He writes a beautiful book Letter from prisons while letters from prison while he's uh, incarcerated. And um, just as Allied forces are marching into Germany, he's executed just three days uh, before uh, Germany is liberated. When there are situations like that, I think inactivity or passivity is, it would be a shame. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of other situations though where we have to be very wise. I mean, I I don't think we ever back down. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about what's essential and Mm -hmm. what's core. I think those are the things that I'm always going to be willing to stand really strong on. Mm -hmm. You know, simple ideas, even that uh, human beings are sacred, made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Uh, That's going to drive what I do. Now, I mean, we, we, we could use something like um, the, the, the the challenge of abortion. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we do culturally about that? Because I honestly believe that every human being is made in the image of God and in his value. And yet we have laws on the book that make something like abortion permissible. Well, one way we can look at it is, well, that's up to individuals. Um, and many people do, like they say personally, I'm against abortion. I would never have one, um, but I can't uh, mandate or legislate legislate behavior. Um, there are other people that look at that perspective and say, you know, I, I want to be actively engaged in trying to solve the problem. Now, an extreme view would be, oh, 20 years ago, we had people who were committing acts of violence against abortion clinics, I don't know if that's ever going to get us anywhere, mm-hmm. acts of violence. I, I think that's actually contrary to what the gospel would have us do. I do like the option of saying, you know what? I stand against this, and I want to be a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. So rather than just railing against the evils of something like abortion, saying, and here's how I want to be a part of the solution, I am willing to adopt the child of a mother who's contemplating abortion.
0: Hmm.
1: Now that, that I think is a gospel solution. I am willing to support a home for women who are raising children that they were contemplating aborting. A home where they can be nurtured, where they can be safe, where they can have a support system, where they can receive vocational training. Those those type of solutions, I think, are the positive that we're going for. I think I mentioned some weeks ago that you won't find um, a lot in the Gospels that tell us what Jesus was against, but what he was for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What he's for life. Uh, right. Well, let's make a way for that to happen. I think where we get into trouble, Jordan, is if we just sat back and railed against the evils and then associated individuals who are involved in that um, saying, you're bad. Listen, they're human beings. All human beings are broken and bad. I think we want to find a positive thing. Love says, I will do something about this. I will step forward. So it's a very complicated question, and that's only maybe one cultural issue, but perhaps it gives a bit of a template in how we we face those things.
0: Yeah, There's, there's kind of a similar question that was phrased, do we often take a posture of fighting culture instead of trying to influence it? And I think that your answer kind of the influence side would be almost even serving it on some level to say, Hey, here's the issue and if I believe so strongly that I'm gonna provide a solution sacrificially of, of my own accord, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it and make sure that if if I can't change the overarching problem with legislation or with my opinions moving into place that I'd step into, hey, all right.
1: Yeah. Jordan, isn't it true that what Jesus was always after was the heart? Mm-hmm. So we could pass laws, but here's the problem. Laws never change hearts. So it's, it's, a, it's a shallow fix. Eventually, if hearts are changed, then behavior changes. I mean, that's just part of the message yep. of Jesus in the gospel. Um, laws never impact hearts. But when hearts are deeply changed, behavior then
0: changes yeah. out of that. Yeah, that's great. So, <clears throat> next question I'm going to ask would be, or that was submitted, is, today's Western Christians tend to get up in arms, even with each other, over topics that are worldly, or pagan, or political. How do you think this affects the way the culture sees Christians and Christianity? You even talked about in that specific example, you know, we can get, uh, you know, violent, you know, going in and attacking abortion clinics, so that would be one extreme level of creating this perception of how we've responded to the situation. So in, in today's culture, where we are 2017, what, what do you think we're doing to impact the way the rest of the world sees us?
1: (laughs) You know, just while you're asking that question, I was reminded of something I came across not long ago from Ann Rice, who's uh a, an author who's written prolifically and her own story is, is quite entertaining is that, um, she actually through, um, process of investigation became a follower of Jesus and called herself a Christian. And then a few years into it, she comes out publicly and says, uh, I find that Christians are the most, I think the word she used is disputatious group out there. <laughs> and she said, I can no longer be associated with them, so I am not calling myself a Christian any longer, but instead I will be a follower of Jesus, and that will mm-hmm. be at the core of, of what I believe and what I do and what drives my life. And I don't think she's alone that she would say, sure. I, Christians tend to be disputatious. Now, I don't think all are. Unfortunately, there is what we call a, a vocal minority, and there are people uh, who want to speak up, and it's, we, we've talked about truth and grace, where they're so heavy on the truth, mm-hmm. but incredibly light on the grace. And when John introduces Jesus, he said he came from the Father filled with truth and grace. So truth will always cause some sort of controversy, but grace brings healing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so oftentimes I think those who are known as being uh, divisive, you see truth. And truth without grace is anger. Truth without grace is hurtful. So what do we do? Well, Jordan, I would hope that all of these things we could approach with truth and grace and have them in equal measures. Um, One's just not helpful without the other. So whatever social issue it might be, whatever political issue it might be, um, I want to ask myself, am I responding in truth alone? Right. That's the default for some. Right. Am I responding in grace alone? Because that's never going to address the core issue. Or can I respond with truth and grace? And each of us needs to realize where our default is. Mm -hmm. Some of us are always heavy. Our our, our first inclination is going to be truth, truth, truth. That's Mm -hmm. not okay. That's wrong. And some of us are going to be very grace-oriented. And so I personally, Jordan, I'm trying to always be aware. When I face a difficult situation, I'm going to ask, okay, what's the truth and what's the element of grace, Mm -hmm. and how can both be applied? Mm -hmm. Um, because that's helpful. That changes the world. That looks like Jesus.
0: Yeah, that's great. In episode three, removing obstacles to help people become followers was discussed. What are the obstacles we put in their paths today? So the example you used back in the early church was circumcision, that people are saying, okay, you say you're a follower of Jesus, but if that's true, then you you now need to be circumcised to to actually be a follower of Jesus. and. Paul came back and said, whoa, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Let's 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 revisit this." So today, 2017, are there obstacles that we're putting in people's way to say, "Well, before you can consider yourself this, or before you're actually in, you have to jump through this hoop or jump over this obstacle." Are there any? And if so, what what are, what are they?
1: Jordan, I think there are obstacles, and part of it is. The church needs to realize that church that culture is changing, and as culture changes, we can't just do the things we've always done. Hmm. Um, again, we're not the message is constant; the message never changes. We don't compromise on that, but people aren't coming to engage the message of Jesus with the same background. So I find it interesting. I talked to a gal I had taught on Abraham from the Bible, uh, the Book of Genesis, and I, I, she came to church. And uh, after a couple of weeks of hearing about Abraham, she came up to me. She's an intelligent gal. She was actually a college student. And she said, thank you so much. She said, I have never heard all of that about Abraham Lincoln. I didn't even know he was in the Bible. <laughs> and you're, you're laughing. But when I looked in her eyes, I could realize that she was incredibly sincere. Here's yeah. an intelligent gal who was raised With absolutely no Christian background So she wasn't familiar with Bible stories And when I talked about Abraham, the only Abraham that she knew historically was Abraham Lincoln. So she associated the two together. So that means we're going to have to find ways to talk about the Bible and to talk about biblical characters in a way that drops them in a specific setting to help people understand. We just can't assume that people are now familiar with the maybe the basic stories of the Bible. That people... 40 years ago, learned in Sunday school class. Right. So how can we move, remove those things? Um, linguistically, it's easy for a church to develop its own language, <laughs> and it's religious language. And if you're religious, you get it. If you're not, you're like, what What does that word mean? What right. are you talking about? Words that like, I might throw around commonly, like redemption or even the word worship or right. all of those things. Yeah. You just don't use those in regular language. Right. Um, I was talking with a young gal who actually has been living with us, and I was referring to being surrendered to Jesus, and we we're reading a passage from Paul about being a slave to Jesus. Mm. And uh, so this is a great young gal. And She was so disturbed by Paul saying he was a slave of Jesus. To her, the whole idea of slavery is so atrocious right. and so deplorable. She looked at me and she goes, Paul was wrong. Well, I appreciate her perspective. Uh, so, how do I? So, I needed to bring that concept to her without this whole idea. Some of us might be familiar with Paul saying this I've surrendered my will to Jesus. And he actually talks about being a bondservant, which is a voluntary slave. I have so loved my master that I choose to remain in this relationship even sure. though I could be liberated so those might be examples where we need to speak in ways and present the gospel in ways that's incarnational I know that there I just used a church word yep. <laughs> but uh, John tells this is a book of, of John says Jesus came from the father and he dwelt among us. The actual Greek phrase is he pitched a tent, like camped out here in the midst of humanity, meaning he spoke the language of the people that he appeared to. He understood their culture. He incarnated, took the gospel, the message of Jesus, and presented it in a way where they understood it. One of the problems we have is we take Christianity and all its historical background, and when we are trying to present it to a modern day culture, if we forget the process of incarnation... Meaning, we need to understand where people are at. Mm. And we need to ask this question if Jesus hadn't arrived 2,000 years ago, but instead arrived in 2017, how would he talk? Right. What would he say? How would the message be packaged? The message wouldn't change, but the presentation would. Sure. Because it's a different time in a different place. So, yeah, there are barriers, there are obstacles. And uh, as a church, um, Sometimes we get criticism for different things, being seeker-sensitive. But many people have heard me say this before. What we're trying to do is we're trying to be comprehensible. right? (laughs) And what we're really trying to do is be incarnational, bring the message into our culture in a way that's understandable. Um, But that's too big of a word, a theological word. So we want to be comprehensible. I want people who totally disagree with us to be able to come to a public service, come to one of our small groups, and say, you know, I get it. I get it. Maybe they're not ready to agree. Maybe they're not ready to begin a relationship with Jesus, but they're like, I understand what you guys are saying. I understand where you're coming from. Right. So comprehensible.
0: Yeah. So you talked about Jesus. What What if he hadn't come then and instead came today? So if Jesus showed up today, do you think he'd treat modern-day Western Christians similar to how he treated the Pharisees?
1: Ooh. I guess I'd say I hope not. Um, yeah, because Jesus uh, was so grace-filled with the broken and the needy and people who were on the just the fringes of society and were considered unlovable. Here's what I think Jesus's problem with the Pharisees was, and, and let me explain. The Pharisees were kind of professional clergy; they were the teachers and interpreters of the Bible. When he really gets after them, especially in the book of Matthew, um, it seems like his biggest issue is they're oppressing people with religion, Mm. loading things up upon them that they can't bear. And so religion has become a tool for power and oppression. And Jesus is not okay with that. The second thing that he addresses is that they're completely concerned with external behavior and have neglected heart transformation. Mm. And so he uses strong phrases like, you're like tombstones. Um, it all looks good on the outside, but inside it's dead man's bones. You look like a cup who's clean on the outside, but inside is maggoty and filthy. So his issue is you present religion as a way to find acceptance before God, it's your behavior that counts first. Mm. And he says, but you've never addressed your heart. And mm-hmm. so Jesus, um, you know, he, he takes common teachings where he'll say, you've heard it said, um, do not commit adultery. And the audience is proud. They're like, well, we haven't. But then Jesus says, but I tell you, if you've even looked at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Mm-hmm. And he keeps going on through many of the Ten Commandments saying that. Uh, and so what Jesus is saying is, you missed the forest for the trees. It wasn't just that you never did those things. God actually wants a renewed heart and a mm. changed heart where I can look at people and not have to dwell on what well, We're all going to have temptations, right? Right. But when I dwell on it, if I have an interior life that's terribly unhealthy and filthy, and but my exterior life looks perfect, that's not okay. Right. Jesus says, you, you've missed the big picture there. Right.
0: So then... A uh, little bit of a shift of gears here, um, looking at kind of what our lives look like and some evidence of 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 Jesus in our lives. Um, one of the questions submitted was, do we as believers have the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the Great commission or the gospel if we don't speak in tongues? or are we just wasting, their, wasting our time? So he's referencing some scripture in Acts that talks about how the early church spoke in tongues, and it sounded like gibberish, and there's there's all these uh, words flying out that maybe people don't understand. Um, and then today, what do we do with that? Is is it evidence of a change to our evidence of Jesus in our life? or And if we don't, is it, oh, that person's not a believer, or do we have a different narrative? Yeah.
1: You know, Jordan, this is a question, actually, I get asked a lot, Um, and just yesterday I had a conversation with someone about it. So, when Jesus is leaving the planet, he gives this directive to his disciples. He says, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem. He says, because I am going to give you this gift. Previously, in the book of John, he said, actually, it's better that I leave, because when you have this gift, the Holy Spirit... You will receive, and here it is, you'll receive power to be my witnesses. And then he lists geographic locations, Jerusalem, which is kind of their home court, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Think of a concentric circle moving outwards, eventually to different cultures. And so they go. Uh, But we find in Acts chapter one, they are waiting, uh, ineffective, um, afraid that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. And then on this day of Pentecost, Pentecost means uh, 50 days, so it's 50 days after the Passover feast, um, here comes the Holy Spirit, and we've got wind, and we've got fire to these ancient Old Testament symbols that represent God, and it comes upon each one, and all of a sudden, they go from being ineffective and afraid to speaking in languages, so the Greek term is glossolalia, speaking in languages of That they hadn't learned. They're Galileans, so they're fairly simple. They have their own dialect, not super educated. But they're speaking in languages of visitors who have come for the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem from Mm -hmm. all over the world. And they're declaring the truth of God, the glories of God. And so people are hearing them and they're flabbergasted. They're like, how is it that this Galilean, this is a fisherman, this is a farmer, they're speaking in my language and I'm from North Africa or I'm from Crete, I'm from somewhere in Greece or from Turkey, they're astounded. So that's the first time we see this uh, glossolalia. Now, um, many churches would say that The evidence, the evidence, with the article the, uh, that you have the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. Mm. I would read the text differently. It seems like Jesus says, here's how you know when you have the Holy Spirit, you'll receive power Mm. to be my witnesses. That mention of tongues was a result of the Holy Spirit's power on them to speak in tongues. Now, tongues gets kind of confusing, and I think there's plenty of excess, and there's people, because it's it's a little bit different, We some people want to shy away from it. Jordan, I'll tell you right now, um, I have received that gift, and it's something I do every day. I pray in tongues. But it seems that there are different types of tongues. So one is... I speak a human language that I didn't learn. Now, Jordan, I really wish I had that, because whenever I travel, I'd love to be able to look at somebody and and speak to them in their native language, a language I never learned. I mean, that would be tremendous. That's never happened to me. But Paul, and you'll read mostly about this in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13, 14, he talks about another language where someone has a, a heavenly language, so it's probably not language that other human beings speak, and it seems to be a a, a way where one can commune with God, talk to God, sure. in a like a private devotional way, mm-hmm. and that's that's the language I have. It happened to me when I had an experience with the Holy Spirit, and to me, it's not weird, it's not odd. Um, I don't do it out loud. And Paul says there's even another type of tongue or glossolalia uh, where someone will speak in a public setting in their spiritual gift of tongues and someone else in the room will have a gift of interpretation. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen quite a bit. Um, 15, 20 years ago, it happened more and more frequently in churches. I haven't seen it as much. So tongues, the, the original question is, can you receive power? Absolutely. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. I mean, we don't want to just relegate Him, and this happens too often to the the supernatural, the charismata, the, these grace gifts. Is The Holy Spirit has a much bigger role than that. Mm -hmm. He is our comforter, our advocate or defender. He is our teacher. Mm -hmm. He reminds us. Um, We read that he convicts the world of sin and righteousness. He draws human beings to Jesus. So those are all very core essential things that the Holy Spirit does. But then also is undeniable, especially from Acts and then um, also from Paul's writing in Corinthians, that he gifts the disciples of Jesus with supernatural capacities to carry out the ministry of Jesus. And so I find these gifts are most operative in my life, not happening inside of a church service, but when I am engaged with the mission of Jesus, talking to people who are far from him. Um, if it, Luke refers to them as signs and wonders. And so I think so often they're meant to to cause somebody to reflect yeah. and reconsider where they're at spiritually. It's a sign to them. It causes wonder. So tongues, yes, um, I not essential for salvation. I have a lot of friends who believe that the Holy Spirit is active and working and don't speak in tongues, and I don't have any problem with that. Paul yeah. tells us this. He says, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Yeah. So if anybody's afraid or like, nah, that can't happen, I say, well, Paul said we should eagerly desire them. But he says, especially the gift of prophecy. So Paul puts a special emphasis on that. And prophecy isn't... It's not me sitting down and looking in your eyes and saying, hey, Jordan, uh, let me tell you what's going to happen four weeks from now. Right. There's two parts to prophecy. One is telling, so addressing the future, and we see that in the Bible. But predominantly, the word prophecy is used for foretelling, meaning speaking forth what God would be saying at that moment. Mm. So... Jordan, I eagerly desire that gift of prophecy because Jesus wants to talk mm-hmm. to the people around me. Yeah. And I would love to be prophetic and that I get he's talking through me. Mm-hmm. And he's talking through you and he's talking through every one of our listeners. Mm-hmm. So it's this voice of God, the voice of Jesus still speaking through us.
0: Still active today. Yeah. And so to reiterate, even he even talks about this this question says. The gospel and what you just is, do we have to have the the gift of tongues to, to preach the gospel or are we wasting our time? And so even to reiterate what we even see in Acts is the specific manifestation or a specific showing up of the Holy Spirit to to give power. And so the Holy Spirit could show up when we are trying to share the gospel in a different way to give us what we need to share. God's love, to share what He would want to say, to share what needs to be in that moment. It might be in unique words, or it could be a completely different way to to be present in that moment. So to share who God is, to share the gospel, the good news, it does not have to be tongues. No, it doesn't.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, we all wish that there was, like, you met somebody on the streets from who, you know, a right. refugee from a foreign country, and we could just talk right. to them in their language. But it's to receive power. Right. Um, and I have, I've talked to missionaries or people that traveled that have had this experience where they speak in a language they didn't learn. It's just rare. Right. It was a beautiful thing to initiate the church in Acts chapter two, because you had people from all over the world there. Right. They'd come to the festival. Um, if God wants to do that more, I'm, I'm absolutely open to that. Yeah. But the point is you'll receive power. I think it's the confidence. I think there's supernatural things that, that, um, Follow the believer who is engaging in the ministry of Jesus, yeah. meaning I am here to do the same things that Jesus did. Yep. When he stands up in a synagogue, he says, yep. man, today's the day. I'm here to release the oppressed, mm. open the eyes of the blind, to declare freedom. Yep. Uh, when we're engaged in that, there's a supernatural
0: empowerment that's mm. behind us. Yeah. So I'm not doing it alone. I love that. I love that. Speaking of not doing it alone, there's a question here that says, Eastern Christianity is facing severe persecution and has for centuries, yet it's growing far more in those countries than our own. So this is, I'm going to make this a 2 parted question, and, uh, and probably we'll end up closing out our time, but... Um, so. Eastern Christianity is facing severe persecution and has for centuries, yet it's growing far more in those countries than in our own. So what will it take for a revolution in Western culture? And then part two would be, what can we do in the Western culture to partner with those people in the Eastern countries to say, you are not doing this alone? So part one, what will it take for a revolution in Western culture?
1: Jordan, it is fascinating right now that even in terms of just church attendance in the West, um, the U.S., um, Canada, Europe, uh, church attendance is declining or plateaued. uh, But in the East, it's exponentially growing. And another curious thing is it's divided by the equator. Everything north of the equator seems to be a bit stagnant, but south of the equator... (laughs) It's just unbelievable. When I've been to South America or Africa or just this year, I was in Papua New Guinea. The church is alive and on fire. And I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of people coming to know Jesus. It's just beautiful. Um, it, I, recently, I was just in a conversation with someone who works with our family churches and uh, in China. We have missionaries there before their cultural revolution and and, uh, the rise of communism, and our missionaries had to leave, and they just haven't known what's happened (laughs) recently. They've been able to make contact. It's been, what, 40 years or more uh, with those original leaders, Mm. and we just found out there are 15,000 chinese churches within our family of churches Wow, they've grown exponentially during a time of oppression and just nobody knew they didn't have any help there's the holy spirit's there sponsoring raising up new leaders so what would it take for us jordan i i I think when life is easy um We can have a laxadaisical a form of discipleship. Mm-hmm. I think Jordan partly we've truncated the message of Jesus, um, truncated, shortened it down. and so often the church has presented the message of Jesus as um, a ticket to heaven. Mm-hmm. Hey here's what you need to believe to get into heaven, right? And, and I think it's exactly what we've been trying to address over the last several weeks. Jesus was about disciples who would follow him. And to follow him mm-hmm. means I, I'm going to leave behind the things that make me comfortable and the things I know. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that it would take would be us to become disciples rather than just believers. Mm-hmm. So when I'm a disciple, that means I'm going to do what what Jesus did, what my rabbi did. I'm going to live like he lived. I'm going to love like he loved. When I'm maybe just a Christian or a believer, um, maybe I'm going to live however I want and look forward to heaven. Mm -hmm. Sometimes oppression will do that. You know, Who knows? I I hope that's not in our future. But I think what it does is it makes people really contemplate, am I a disciple or am I a believer? The thing that kind of, Drew the line in the sand for the early church was when the Roman emperors um, decided that they were deities, and they felt like the Roman Empire was was, was fragmenting because uh, it's made up of people of all different religions, and so they they said this: they said, "In in order to participate in commerce, you are going to have to bow your knee and say this phrase: Caesar is Lord." Mm. And so, I, it seems to be very clear, especially in the book of Revelation, um, that the early church said, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. We can live as good Roman citizens. We can be productive and helpful, but we can't We can't say Caesar is Lord because we say Jesus is Lord. And this word Lord, curios. It, it wasn't just like, it was a sign of allegiance, it was mm-hmm. a sign of worship. So... Christians refusing to do that were excluded from commerce. Um, They began to suffer. They were persecuted. Uh, When Jesus is Lord, you're a disciple, and you're willing to face anything. But I pray that we can get there without pressure. How do we help the Eastern Church? Well, you know, there's some things that we can do that um, are obvious, I think support I love I love this church is generous with missions um, I, I, it's amazing how little money goes a long ways in uh, a foreign nation mm-hmm. especially when you're talking about places like India or uh, even China so I think we can support that we want to be aggressive about planting churches um, also prayer mm-hmm. I think praying just praying for people that are under oppression mm-hmm. Uh, How else can we support? Well, I'm excited about some of the things that are happening in what we call closed access countries, Um, places where Christianity is actually illegal. Um, Mainly, it's the Muslim world right now. I just was uh, having a conversation with with some man who lives there, and he's involved in business as mission because you're not allowed to live there as a missionary or a Christian. But he's developing businesses that help to increase people's lives, make them better, help human beings flourish, and in the process, trying to be the hands, feet, and mouthpiece of Jesus in his culture. And and Jordan, you'd be amazed. I mean, we can't even talk about it. We can't even mention these people's names because their lives are in danger. Um, I'm working with somebody right now who is doing whatever they can to learn Arabic, to be able to go into a closed-access country and be able to love those people like Jesus would love them. That's that's courageous. Mm. Oh, that's putting your life on the line. That's right. discipleship stuff. So I think finding people who are willing to do that. You you and I might not be the ones who are going to go to those places, but can we be behind? Uh, last thing would be a statement that Jesus made that echoes through my mind every day. Um, he's standing in Samaria, which is a bit of a foreign place for the disciples. They're, they're uncomfortable. And he looks out and he says, the harvest is, Is plentiful. And he's not talking about wheat. He's saying these Samaritans, they're different than you ethnically, but they're so ready to hear God. So he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few.
0: Hmm.
1: So the crisis was not with people being far from God. There's always people far from God who need hope. I said, The challenge is there just aren't enough people. So Jesus then says, So ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest field. So maybe our last thing, could could we pray? Like, I want to pray every day of my life. Lord, would you raise up workers for the harvest mm-hmm. field? And if it's me, I'll go. If it's Jordan, I'll participate in sending him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pray that men and women, young, mature, whatever it might be, are ready to go.
0: Mm. Well, Nate, thank you so much for spending the last... Uh, a few weeks uh, discussing the church, discussing the heart, discussing discipleship and all these topics And um, so appreciative of your time and, and thought going into this and uh, for you out there listening if you, if you did enjoy this please share it with people who, who might have questions about the church who have questions about what it's supposed to look like or what it's supposed to be and if you've been encouraged share it with, with those around you so thanks for listening, thanks for tuning in and uh, um, this has been so fun for us and we're glad you were a part of it